I would bomb the shit out of him. Yeah, that's what he's doing. And I'm not talking about the Democrats or the Republicans. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on your friendly neighborhood internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around, swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, coming up with the uh, Trump administration dropping out of the landmark Paris Climate Accords, California and its governor, Jerry Brown, are stepping up their game in the fight against climate change. The legislature out here this week passed what some are calling a landmark cap-and-trade bill, actually an extension to our current one that is already in place in a bipartisan victory this week in Sacramento. Uh, Des, are you one of those? Desi Doyen, are you one of those who are calling this a landmark victory? Well, I would call it a landmark cap-and-trade system. The extension was really important, but, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of give-and-take that comes along, a lot of horse trading, I should say. There is. We'll this. talk about some of that horse trading momentarily. Uh, this was after a pretty bruising fight in Sacramento. Nonetheless, uh, the Jerry Brown and the Democrats, they were able to get the votes of two-thirds of the legislature in both houses. Democrats and Republicans joining in. Some environmentalists, however, as you uh, allude to there, Des, uh, in fact, a whole bunch of environmental groups are none too happy about this package of bills that has passed the California state legislature. We will talk with one of those environmentalists shortly. Climate hawk R.L. Miller will join us here in a bit. In the meantime, Mitch McConnell says he will still hold a vote at some point next week for some reason. On the latest GOP attempt to repeal but not replace the Affordable Care Act, that despite three senators who have already said they would vote against it, three Republican senators, uh, which would effectively kill the effort. And uh, despite the fact that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office 
has come out late today with their score of this GOP repeal-only bill. According to Reuters, this is breaking just moments ago, 32 million Americans would lose their health insurance by 2026. 32 million Americans would lose their health insurance under this uh, Senate plan to repeal Obamacare without providing a replacement. The Congressional Congressional Budget Office reported on Wednesday the CBO estimated that the number of uninsured would rise by 17 million next year alone if the Affordable Care Act were to be scratched without a new health care plan in its place. 17 million next year alone in 2018, an election year. Uh, What the hell are these uh, people thinking? Well, they are thinking, of course, that this will bring somehow will bring Democrats to the table if they pass it in order to keep those 32 million people from losing their insurance. Oh, like that that sort of uh, do what I want or I'll shoot the dog thing. That's very much what it is. I mean, it is a cruel, mean spirited and ugly way to do it. It will probably bring the uh, Democrats to the table. Um, Just to save people's lives. My goodness. uh, It seems a damn dangerous uh, scheme by the Republicans, frankly, electorally. Uh, But hey, what do I, especially since they right now don't have the votes to, uh, to, to do this. Why would they do this? I don't know. What do I know? Fox News poll, however, they know something. 74% of Americans want Republicans to reach out to Democrats regarding health care. And that's from Fox News, the Fox News poll, 74 percent of Americans. They could do that without putting themselves, uh, you know, putting putting this uh, thing up for a vote next week. But that's not the way uh, apparently Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell want to do it. Um, anyway, more on that, no doubt, in the days ahead. Uh, this just breaking Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort are now scheduled to testify before a Senate panel Next week, the Senate Intelligence Committee, I believe, uh, Jared Kushner will testify on July 24 behind closed doors for some reason. He will Mm. not give open testimony. Uh, So we will look forward to that. Desi Doyen, I'm sure you'll look forward to waking up very early to follow those (laughs) hearings. Oh, gosh, you know, there's nothing better. Hey, in the meantime, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is shutting down the State Department's war crimes unit. Well, that should come in handy. Rex Tillerson, according to Foreign Policy, according to Colm Lynch over at Foreign Policy, is downgrading the U.S. campaign against mass atrocities, shuttering the State Department's office that worked for two decades to hold war criminals accountable, according to several former U.S. officials. Tillerson's office recently informed Todd Buckwald, the special coordinator of the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the department, that he's being reassigned to a position in the State Department's Office of Legal Affairs. According to a a former U.S. official familiar with the move, the remaining staff in the office, Bookwald was told, may be reassigned to the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Um, According to Foreign Policy, the, uh, the decision to close the office comes at a time when America's top diplomat has been seeking to reorganize the State Department to concentrate on what he sees as key priorities, namely pursuing economic opportunities for American businesses. Like, I don't know, maybe ExxonMobil? And strengthening U.S. military prowess. So instead of going after war criminals... 
we're going to be helping American businesses and uh, increasing the U.S. military. Those changes come at the expense of programs that promote human rights, fight poverty around the world, which have been targeted for steep cuts, steep budget cuts by the Trump administration. Richard Dicker, the director of Human Rights Watch International Justice Program, says there's no mistaking it. This move will be a huge loss for accountability. The war crimes ambassador at the uh, State Department um, and its organizational independence gave the office much more weight, Dicker added. One senior State Department official speaking on background said it was pure speculation on someone's part that the war crimes office was closing. The official also cautioned that policymakers often float the idea of closing certain offices and bureaus, quote, just to see what comes back. Well, wow. here's what's coming back. Don't close the goddamn war crimes offices at the State Department, no matter how little you already use it. That's what's coming back. Uh, David Sheffer, a professor at Northwestern University's uh, Pritzker School of Law, says this is a very harsh signal to the rest of the world that the U.S. is essentially downgrading the importance of accountability for the commission of atrocity crimes. This sends a strong signal to perpetrators of mass atrocities that the U.S. is not watching you anymore. Speaking of uh, perpetrators of mass atrocities, Donald Trump's air war has already killed more than 2,000 civilians in just the almost six months he's been in office. Civilian casualties from the U.S.-led war against the so-called Islamic State are on pace to double under President Donald Trump, according to an Air Wars investigation for the Daily Beast. Air Wars is a collaborative, uh, journalist-led nonprofit project that tracks archives, um, tracks and archives the international uh, air war against ISIS and other groups in Iraq and Syria and Libya. Air, war, air Wars researchers estimate that at least 2,300 civilians likely died from coalition strikes overseen by the Obama White House. Roughly 80 each in um, 80 each month in Iraq and Syria. As of July 13, more than 22 additional civilians appear to have been killed by coalition raids since Trump was inaugurated. That's upwards of 360 per month or 12 or more civilians killed for every single day of this administration. So frankly, 2,300 civilians uh, dead under coalition strikes under uh, the Obama White House. That was bad enough. That was more than uh, died, I guess, in the World Trade Center, wasn't it? 2,300? No, that was 3,000. 3,000 uh, total, including the Pentagon and all of that. Uh, but now, uh, another 2,200 just in the first six months of Trump's time in office. So the Trump's time in office, nearly as many yep. civilians as, have as been in killed in all of the years uh, of Obama. Neither of those things are good. But the fact that the numbers have... Uh, doubled uh, is startling and troubling. The coalition's own confirmed casualty numbers, in other words, from the U.S. government, uh, those are much lower than uh, other estimates, but they also show the same trend. 40% of the 603 civilians so far admitted 
killed by the uh, coalition alliance, died in just the first four months of Trump's presidency, according to the coalition's own data. Air Wars estimates that the minimum approximate number of civilian deaths from coalition attacks will have doubled under Trump's leadership within his first six months of office. Uh, the, uh, this is, uh, who is this, uh, Belkis uh, Willie, an Iraq researcher for the Human Rights Project, says, Remarkably, when I interview families at camps who have just fled the fighting in Mosul, Iraq, now said to have been cleared of ISIS control, um, the first thing they complain about is not the three horrific years they spent under ISIS or the last months of no food and clean water. They complain about the American airstrikes. Many told me they had survived such hardship and uh, hardship and almost made it out with the families only to lose all their loved ones in a strike before they had time to flee. That was in, that's in Iraq, across the border in Raqqa, Syria, where the U.S. carries out nearly all of the coalition's airstrikes and has deployed artillery. The civilian toll is less publicly known, but even more startling. In the three months before American-backed forces breached the city's limits in early June, Air Wars tracked more than 700 likely civilian deaths in the vicinity of the self-declared ISIS capital. U.N. figures suggest a similar toll. In one of his first moves as president, Trump ordered a new counter-ISIS plan to be drawn up. Second on his list of requests were recommended changes to the U.S. rules of engagement and other U.S. policy restrictions that exceed the requirements of international law regarding the use of force against ISIS. In short, Trump was demanding that the Pentagon take a fresh look at protections for civilians on the battlefield, uh, exceptions uh, to all but those specifically required by international law, and that represents a major shift from decades of U.S. military doctrine. It's uh, Frankly, it's a startling report, a troubling report uh, from the Daily Beast this week that is getting no attention whatsoever, because in this country, uh, we don't debate war. We don't, uh, neither Republicans nor Democrats are willing to talk about what we are doing uh, against ISIS, <clears throat> for which there is no actual authorization in truth. And certainly not what we're doing in Syria, as we are now attacking uh, the Syrian government in various ways. That is completely unlawful under both U.S. law and international law, but we are not only doing it, we are also not debating it. Our members of Congress simply don't have the courage to debate any of this, to bring any of it up. They are scared to death. And so they have given um, free reign to whoever is in the White House to do whatever they want. Good thing we're getting rid of the war crimes unit. We would hate for uh, any of those uh, folks at the State Department in the war crimes unit to actually hold our own president accountable for war crimes. Uh, in the meantime, this is, uh, let's see, uh, David Roth, just one more point on that. Uh, Washington Post columnist David Rothkopf, um, host of the Deep State radio pro podcast, uh, cites that more than 2,000 civilians killed so far in just months under Trump's air war. He says, this matters. There is a cost to it. Our enemies are strengthened by it, and our president doesn't care or seem to understand. <clears throat> All right, one more piece here uh, for now. 
Uh, remember that, uh, and, and it's all related here, remember that House Committee victory, I believe we reported it a couple of weeks ago on the show, uh, House Committee victory for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Democrat from California, about three weeks ago, I think she won uh, bipartisan support for an amendment in this uh, House committee to finally wind down the 2001 authorization of military force, the AUMF, that was passed by both the House and the Senate just days after the 9-11 attacks. And it authorized the president, President Bush at the time, to use military force to go after al-Qaeda and any associates tied to those attacks. Well, the AUMF that Presidents Bush and then Obama and now Trump have used to justify just about every military incursion that we've now entered into anywhere in the world in the 16 years since that uh, AUMF was passed in 2001, well, that was actually uh, struck from a... uh, It was a big victory for Barbara Lee. She's been fighting for years Uh, to do away with this authorization. And uh, in this uh, House committee, they actually repealed the AUMF. It was a big victory for her at the time. She is the only member of either the House or the Senate to have voted against that 2001 authorization, which she correctly predicted at the time would be an open-ended blank check for presidents to launch wars anywhere in the world for any reason at any time. Well, uh, Lee's victory in finally getting that AUMF repealed in committee has apparently been short-lived. Oh. Yep. Uh, House Republican leadership has removed that uh, provision from a defense spending bill that would have rep- re- would have repealed that 2001 war authorization used now in the fight uh, against al-Qaeda and ISIS and, yes, Bashar al-Assad and Syria. The amendment was added to the House Defense Appropriations Bill by Barbara Lee, and it would have repealed that uh, authorization. And then uh, it would have repealed it after eight months after the bill was signed into law, giving Congress that time to pass new war authorization specifically for the wars that we're actually in now. Lee and other critics argue that the uh, 2001 AUMF is now outdated as both Obama and Trump administrations have used it as legal justification for war against ISIS, which did not exist back in 2001 when it was passed. The amendment would have set the stage for a major debate over the U.S. war on terror on the House floor, and leaders in both parties have been reluctant to pass any new war authorization since the U.S. began bombing ISIS in 2014. There's no consensus on what authorities or restrictions should be placed on the commander in chief. And many lawmakers are wary about taking a vote on the war. They remember the political damage that was done to folks like, you know, Hillary Clinton because she voted in favor of the war. So nobody wants to vote on this at all. They don't want to debate it. They don't want to vote it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to completely abdicate their job in Congress. Um, It is their constitutional role to declare war, and they're just looking the other way. That debate now won't happen. It doesn't need to happen because they've just removed this repeal of the AUMF, which which had passed and on a bipartisan basis, by the way, in that committee. They've just stripped it out of the bill. The defense appropriation bill is being combined with several other security-related spending measures for a House vote next week, and the House Rules Committee used that opportunity to just pull that uh, the Lee Amendment out from the larger measure. 
There's some iron here here after the uh, after the successful vote in the committee last month. Lee sought out House Speaker Paul Ryan on the floor, urging him not to strip her provision from the bill. She knew this was going to be a fight. She thought this was likely going to happen. She said at the time it would be a mistake and, frankly, an abdication of congressional responsibility to kill this important bipartisan amendment. She was trying to appeal to House Speaker Paul Ryan. His office, uh, he did not on his own uh, commit one way or another, but his office called the proposal irresponsible. So it's irresponsible to repeal this authorization for military force, which has been used for 16 years, completely in violation of all kinds of laws in the Constitution. It's irresponsible because eight months later, there will be no authorization for any of our military actions. That, according to Republicans, is irresponsible, or at least according to Speaker uh, Paul Ryan. However, repealing health care to 32 million people 17 million of of whom will completely lose their coverage next year. That apparently is just fine, at least for the majority leader, the Republican majority leader in the U.S. Senate. No, that is not irresponsible at all. Unbelievable. That's where we are. Well, as we try to claw our way back to reality and common sense in this uh, in this nation of ours, California, at least, is trying to lead the way. We'll see how they're doing uh, next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. California soul. Yep. Sing it, lady. California soul. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. R.L. Miller, the chair of the California Democratic Party's Environmental Caucus and founder of Climate Hawks Vote, will join us momentarily to discuss her concerns with the major package of environmental bills that were adopted this week by the state legislature in California in what is being described as a major victory for Democratic State Governor Jerry Brown and his attempt to fill the gap left behind when the uh, Trump administration uh, has now seemingly decided to throw in the towel in the fight against climate change. Is that the best way to put it there, Des? Seeding uh, <laughs> innovations? Throw in the towel, maybe uh, shovel dirt, bury it there might be go. a better way to put and it. And in the bargain, seeding uh, all of those innovations in renewable energy and uh, to other countries and the, the fight to curb greenhouse gases to other countries uh, and to the states instead of to the nation since Trump says he's out. Um, and was any in any event, while this package of bills out here in California, we'll talk about it in a minute, 
uh, is being seen as a big victory for Democrats, and it was a bipartisan victory as well. Uh, environmentalists hoped for much more out of this bill, and R.L. is a Democrat herself. She will join us momentarily to discuss that bill, that package of bill and, uh, bills, and her concerns about it. But the the fight against dirty and deadly, dangerous emission emissions from the uh, from big oil and and big gas out here in California is playing out on several different fronts right now. Frankly, with or without Donald Trump, two uh, San Francisco Bay Area counties and a Southern California city concerned about rising sea levels sued 37 of the world's biggest oil and coal companies on Monday, claiming that the fossil fuel giants should pay for damages wrought by climate change. A first-of-its-kind challenge that some liken to the high-stakes and ultimately successful litigation against the tobacco industry in the 1990s, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Marin County, San Mateo County, and Imperial Beach in, uh, in San Diego County filed separate but nearly identical lawsuits in their respected, respective superior court offices this week. They're working together here, seeking to tie fossil fuel development to climate-related problems in coastal areas. Lawyers for the three communities work together to document such effects as more frequent flooding and beach erosion, as well as the possibility that water will eventually inundate roads, airports, sewage treatment plants. Oh, that's pleasant. And other real estate, I know, isn't it? Uh, the lawyers contend that the oil companies knew about the damage that their actions were causing. They denied it, and they sought to discredit scientific findings that greenhouse gas emissions were heating the Earth's atmosphere. So these suits uh, going on the offensive here are the latest in a small but growing effort to hold Chevron, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and other major energy companies accountable for the effects of global warming. Legal experts say the challenge is more comprehensive than previous endeavors along this line and is based on better climate science and more evidence to support a claim of conspiracy among oil company executives. This is a big deal. Oh, it's a very big deal, and it will be interesting to see how it plays into the lawsuit uh, conducted, the investigation, I should say, conducted mm -hmm. by New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman and other Northeastern Attorney Generals who are trying to find out how much Exxon knew, because it sure does look like, when you look back at their past documents, that they knew about it and they chose to lie about it. Michael Berger, the executive director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, says this is a long anticipated move in climate litigation. You'll find pieces of it in other cases, he says. But bringing it together like this is different than what has been done before. You can expect there will be a great deal of interest in how this litigation proceeds. Oh, you bet. The two Bay Area counties and Imperial Beach are seeking reimbursement for current and future losses caused by climate change, as well as punitive damages. This could cost them a lot. Lawyers for Marin and San Mateo uh, and Imperial Beach are hoping to show that the energy companies have created a public nuisance. Oh, definitely. Uh, well, your opinion, well, uh, notwithstanding. Well, yes, my opinion. Well, you know, when you look at flooding and all of that, that's going to cost billions of dollars in to, to protect coastal infrastructure that's already there. That's the legal theory here. Uh, something that uh, public nuisance uh, legally is something that causes widespread harm in this case. It's the same doc doctrine 
that state attorney general attorneys general used in the late 90s to win 206 billion dollars in settlements from the tobacco industry over the health costs of cigarettes. So they are modeling this suit precisely after that suit from the 90s. That was quite successful. The three lawsuits also argue that the oil companies, again, like the tobacco industry, conspired to mislead the public about side effects of their product. The suits claim that energy company executives knew for nearly 50 years that fossil fuel development was warming the planet, but they concealed that knowledge while continuing to push a destructive product. Interesting. We will keep our eyes on those uh, now three cases, and uh, they also mirror that one by uh, by the, the kids that was brought forward that has yes. been allowed to move forward. Is yes. that case still moving that forward? That case Doug? is still moving forward, both in state and federal courts. Charging oh, charging that, that the um, that the U.S. government mm-hmm. has a responsibility to safeguard a safe climate for future Americans. In other words, that the U.S. government is failing in its responsibility to protect kids today who will be the adults of tomorrow. Yeah, but all it's going to do is cause your gas prices to go up when uh, the oil companies start including all of the attorney's fees they're going to have to now uh, deal with. Well, you know, to be honest, I think they can afford it. It's the most successful and profitable industry ever in the history of mankind. And speaking of that, their success and their profits, that is exactly one of the concerns that environmentalists have about this otherwise landmark package of environmental bills that passed out here in California and is being looked at around the country and around the world as uh, potentially a model. So we will tell you about that legislation and the concerns from environmentalists about it. That fight is straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. R.L. Miller joins us next. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Ah, California, here I come, Mm -hmm. right back where I started from. Yep, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In the wake of Donald Trump announcing his intention uh, to drop out of the landmark Paris Climate Accord to reduce man-made greenhouse gases responsible for global warming, the state of California, representing on its own the sixth largest economy in the world, is stepping up to take more of a global lead in the fight against climate change. In particular, its outspoken governor, Jerry Brown, has promised to fill the vacuum 
opened up by the Trump administration's decision to let other countries take the lead and make much of the money with it that comes with the uh, crucial and desperate fight to move toward renewable energy and net zero emissions as soon as possible to help stave off the worst effects of global warming, which have already become more than apparent to pretty much everyone in the world other than those whose livelihoods depend on the dirty fossil fuel industry. This week, after a bruising battle in the state legislature in what is being described by some as a stunning bipartisan victory, California's signature initiative to fight global warming will get another decade of life after lawmakers from both parties joined Governor Jerry Brown in extending the law credited with reducing the state's carbon footprint. Monday night's votes to renew California's cap-and-trade program bolsters the Democratic governor's quest to portray the state as a leader in the fight against climate change. At a bipartisan celebratory press conference following the vote this week, members from both parties noted the contrast with Washington, where Republicans have struggled to pass legislation and have taken a skeptical view of regulations to combat greenhouse gases. Assembly Republican leader Chad, uh, Chad Mays said, We didn't come here to Sacramento to just be Republicans and to hate on Democrats. We came here to Sacramento to make people's lives better. The three-bill package now heads to Jerry Brown's desk. He has uh, sought to offer up the, uh, the state's cap-and-trade uh, cap program as a model that can be reproduced in other states and even other nations to reduce carbon emissions and combat rising temperatures. He portrays the initiative, which would have otherwise ended in 2020 without legislative action, as essential for the survival of civilization. Extending it has been one of his highest priorities as he nears the end of his fourth term. Not all in a row, mind you. The first two were about 50 years ago, in fact. Nonetheless, the uh, legislation was fiercely opposed by a number of environmentalists who say it's far too timid for progressive California. And conservatives also fought the measure saying it will raise costs in an already expensive state. Nonetheless, Brown and Democratic leaders were able to cobble together the two-thirds support needed in both chambers to extend the law through 2030. The bill faced stiff opposition from both Democrats and Republicans alike in recent weeks leading up to the vote, prompting a last-minute plea from Democrats and what the AP describes as a near-apocalyptic address from Brown about a California devastated by climate change. During negotiations last week, Brown harangued members of California state legislature to pass the package of bills on a bipartisan basis, to ensure the two-thirds majority required to raise revenue of any kind in the Golden State in hopes of extending that landmark cap-and-trade emissions program through 2030. He called it one of the most important votes of their lives in his trademark Jerry Brown blunt style. We are reducing the permissible level of CO2 and greenhouse gases that can be emitted. And that cap is going down. 
is the most efficient, elegant program in the whole world. The California cap and trade system is copied by the biggest country in the world, China. It's copied by and embraced and part of what we're doing, uh, Quebec. Ontario is waiting to join. So is Oregon. You have an incredible mechanism that protects our economy and that uh, reduces greenhouse gases. I mean, don't throw this thing out. Cap and trade is the way forward. I know we got politics that have everybody on different sides. This is fundamental, and that's why I stand here. I say it is the most important vote because uh, climate change is real. It is a threat to organized human existence. Maybe not in my life. I'll be dead. What am I, 79? Do I have five years more? Do I have 10 years more? 15? I don't know. 20? I don't know. I don't even want that long. But most of you people, when I look out here, a lot of you people are going to be alive. And you're going to be alive in a horrible uh, situation that you're going to see mass migrations, vector diseases, forest fires, uh, Southern California burning up. That's real, guys. That's what the scientists of the world are saying. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. <laughs> That's the, the colorful Governor Jerry Brown of California arguing in favor of the, uh, the bill that passed successfully this week to extend the cap-and-trade program and do other related stuff. Republicans, of course, opposed the measure. Uh, at least the ones who, who did oppose it uh, did so on their usual basis that it will cost too much for businesses and consumers and make little difference ultimately in the fight against global warming. California represents a bit less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions overall. But what are those Democrats and environmentalists who opposed the extension? What are their concerns? Here to talk about their concerns is R.L. Miller. She is a founder of Climate Hawks Vote, which uh, works to build grassroots political power for the climate movement by supporting climate hawks running for Congress and by breaking the stranglehold of the fossil fuel industry on our democracy. Miller is also the elected chair of the California Democratic Party's Environmental Caucus. R.L. Miller, welcome to the broadcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Really glad to have you here. All right. Uh, I wanted to set up a lot because I want to let you uh, respond to a lot of it. I know that uh, Climate Hawks votes uh, have uh, some strong opinions about the bill that passed. But first, before we get into your concerns about the package of bills, uh, hopefully here without getting too deep into the wonk weeds, if it's possible, Many people have heard the phrase cap and trade, uh, but they don't even under, they, uh, you know, it's not even clear to me always how it actually works. Can you explain these cap and trade emission schemes in, in sort of basic terms? Real basic terms. Um, cap and trade is a system where polluters are told that they have an overall cap industry-wide Um statewide, mm -hmm. on how much pollution they can emit. If you end up beating your goal, mm -hmm. if you end up emitting less than you're supposed to, you end up with some credits. You can sell those um, to other companies. There are auctions. The auctions are complicated. Mm -hmm. um, the way I analogize this is while a carbon tax says that 
I want to lose weight and I will charge myself another dollar for every donut that I buy. Mm -hmm. The idea being that the donuts get so expensive that I ultimately stop buying them and cause myself to lose weight. Cap and trade is more like saying 50 people are in a room and they all need to lose 50 pounds. And if one of them loses two pounds instead of one pound, then he has the right to sell that pound lost over to somebody else mm-hmm. who has been struggling and eating too many donuts. So, so that's sort of cap and trade uh, versus a straight carbon tax where you just put a, a price on carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, period, uh, and make that price more and more expensive to uh, encourage less and less emissions. Is that sort of right? Cap and trade is a carbon price. It is simply a different way of mm-hmm. of pricing carbon. And Paul Krugman at the New York Times likes it in theory because he says that the carbon tax provides a set limit on how much per unit, but it doesn't actually stop you from 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 hitting a ceiling and going beyond that ceiling. So if you have a lot of money, you can simply choose to keep on buying donuts even as they get to the $10 per donut range. Mm-hmm. Um, Cap-and-trade, on the other hand, sets a finite ceiling as to how many how many don- yeah. donuts everybody in the room can consume. Everybody in the room just needs to figure out how to fairly allocate them. So it's not a bad system in theory. The problem with it is the way that this bill came about, and in particular, one aspect of cap-and-trade in California is what are called offsets. The offsets um, are that money is invested by... California conducts an auction, Mm -hmm. and money is invested from the auction into projects throughout the world that offset carbon dioxide. So if, if I'm choosing to eat too many donuts here, I can possibly go and alleviate my guilt by funding a Weight Watchers program over in Brazil. And so, and so, just to just to, to translate that, or <laughs> no, just to translate that into uh, actual carbon terms. If I'm running a, a refinery here in California, uh, and I've got uh, a certain number of uh, tons of carbon emissions that I'm allowed to release, if I instead pay a bunch of money to plant trees in the rainforest or something like that in a completely different country, that can offset how much I am allowed to emit at my refinery? Exactly. And there are, and that is what has been happening. Californians have been using cap-and-trade money mm-hmm. to fund rainforests in Brazil and rice farmers in Arkansas. The problem with it is that the people who live next to the refineries mm-hmm. in California have correctly pointed out that this is not doing a darn thing to make their lives any better. Mm-hmm. And they live in California and they vote right. and they're mad. And they're ma- and and is the uh, my understanding was early on that there would be no offsets in this bill uh, as the package w- was put together a month or two ago that it would keep the uh, emitters from being able to buy those. Uh, acres of rainforests in Brazil and so forth. Was that ultimately removed from the bill that ended up passing? No. Um, this bill had a, there was a separate bill that had that, mm-hmm. but this bill had a very different path specifically. And I came into possession of the smoking gun documents to prove this. Um, it was 
it began with a wish list put out by Big Oil in California. This bill began as a wish list with 10 points put together by Western States Petroleum Association, which is basically Chevron Mm -hmm. and several of the other oil companies in California. And they dated their wish list April, and then in late June, the governor started proposing um, bill language, and I was given those documents as well as the wish wish list. And there's a real marked similarity between what big oil wanted and what the governor was proposing. These were essentially concessions? These were concessions that were made to the oil and gas company to meet their concerns? Yes. And that was how this bill started. And it's a bad bill. And Erica Morehouse, uh, she's a senior attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, she said, now, because I know that a lot of environmentalists have objected to those concessions that were made, but but she frames it this way, and I'd like to get your thoughts. Uh, she sa- frames the influence of the oil and gas lobby in, in a more positive light here. She says that uh, oil companies are now at the table negotiating over how, not whether, they are going to be regulated. And she says that uh, that would feel like a fairy tale in most of the rest of the country. Uh, True, your thoughts on that, R.L. Miller? Well, they're not regulated very well. And specifically what they won was one of their big concerns was they managed to remove the right of local air quality districts to regulate them. In addition to the Cal Air Resources Board, we have a number of air quality management districts, AQMDs, in southern, in California, several of them throughout the state. And the Bay Area AQMD in particular was moving towards regulating carbon beyond Mm. and, and tighter than what California ARB was planning to do. And the oil industry did not like that one single bit. And so one of the bad points of the bill now known as AB 398 was that it removed the ability of Bay Area AQMD to provide local regulations for local refineries. So you want to call that uh, WISPA praising itself for being regulated? Mm. I don't think so. <laughs> so that so this means um, that the the market itself, the statewide market uh, for cap and trade, that will now determine uh, the regulations for all of these refineries and so forth. And so local uh, local areas, uh, these local air quality boards are no longer able to intercede and say, uh, yeah, you may be meeting your quotients because you're uh, you know, buying offsets or whatever, but we're still getting killed here, and we'd like to limit how much you can do. That can no longer be done under this measure. Exactly, and I and I want to add on to a point uh, regarding um, the Environmental Defense Fund mm-hmm. um, and other of the environmental green groups that have lobbyists inside the building. Several of them, Environment California, Natural Resources, Defense Council, Next Gen Climate, etc., they have paid lobbyists inside the building. And these are good people. Normally, I'm on the same side of, of, as them on most fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will be on the same side as them regarding, for example, SB 100 to get California to 100% clean energy-powered um, sector, sector by 2045. Mm-hmm. But in this case, 
a number of legislators told me that lobbyist walks into my office and says, well, this bill sucks, but we need to pass something. And that was, they all conceded, this bill sucks, but we need to pass something. Mm -hmm. And Brown was placing immense pressure on the legislatures to pass something, anything. And he was going around saying, for example, the French ambassador is asking whether California is going to lead where Donald Trump is failing, and we need to pass something, anything. And so they did pass anything, and it sucks. Well, when you say it sucks, uh, state law now requires California to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 40 percent by by 2030. That is among the most aggressive mandates for carbon reduction uh, really anywhere in the world. Um, Politics, of course, is the art of the possible. And uh, the argument being made here is that, well, they needed two thirds in both houses because these measures would raise revenue and that California law requires two thirds majority in both houses. So, you know, with that said, yeah, they do need to pass something. Um, Will this result in helping us to meet those targets out here in California, the 40 percent emissions? I mean, if they do need to do something, well, they do need to do something, no? My two biggest objections to the bill were, number one, it's original sin being born with a whisper wish list. And number two, the simple fact that the bill will not enable us to meet our 2030 goals. And calling it a breakthrough and a landmark and all the rest of the things that the legislators are saying mm-hmm. about it now doesn't actually change that the fact that we cannot meet our 2030 goals with this bill. And what what would you important. have what what would you have liked to have seen the state legislature uh, do here? And could that your preferred measure have achieved the the two thirds votes in both houses as you see it, R.L.? My preferred measure would have eliminated um, free allowances. And I'm going to get a little technical and wonky here, so please bear with me. Okay. And I'm not a technical or wonky person myself. <laughs> All right. But uh, the system has a lot of free allowances in it already. Okay. Um, don't ask me why. There's all sorts of economic reasons why they feel that giving free allowances to people helps them in paying money for allowances at the auctions that they set that they've set up. So they give a lot of polluters, specifically the oil and gas company, a lot of free allowances. And the allowances have piled up in 2015 through 2017. And the allowances are not being erased by mm. the new bill. Instead they're going to be allowed to percolate through the system the bottom line on it is that there are so many free allowances. One of my economist friends, who's much smarter than I am, than I am on this, of course, calls it all hot air mm. and says that if we have too much hot air, it's all going to escape and we cannot meet our 2030 goals. Is there- That's really important. Is there uh, an upside here at all in getting this structure in place? And because because as I understand it, if I understand it, uh, this cap and trade market, they will be allowed to, uh, you know, to, to change the, the, the targets over time, to change the price that they're charging uh, for the carbon, to change how much can be released. Uh, is there any upside there as you see it, RL? And 
Uh, I know there was two other uh, uh, package, two other uh, uh, bills that were included in this package. Are there some upsides uh, as Climate Hawks votes seize it uh, in either of those two uh, additional bills? Well, the first bill was a Republican poison pill, um, and that is a constitutional amendment. It, we call it ACA-1, not mm-hmm. to be confused with the Affordable Care Act, which right. we all like. Okay. But when I first saw, saw that one, I called it insane. And the idea was that at some point in 2024, I believe, after Jerry Brown is out of office, after he says he's dead and he's d- no mm-hmm. longer cons- cares about his cockamamie legacy, <laughs> then the oil companies, or excuse me, then the Republicans would demand a two-thirds vote um, to approve spending on cap-and-trade measures. They think that with that two-thirds vote, they would be able to probably stop most spending on cap-and-trade projects. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that Jerry Brown really wants cap-and-trade money to go toward the high-speed rail, Mm -hmm. and Republicans' number one hatred, pet peeve, is Jerry Brown spending money on a high-speed rail. (laughs) So once he's out of office, they're going to use that ACA-1 to deprive him of revenue for high-speed rail. And I don't know what he was thinking when he thought that it was good. My general sense of it, coming back to Brown was desperate for anything that he could call a win to get the French ambassador office back. And so he went along with anything put forth by the Republicans, by the oil and gas industries, by agriculture. They had some last-minute concessions. The one that had me seeing red was a $90 million a year tax break for the electric utilities. Mm. Why? No particular reason why. This was a brand-new thing that had never come up come up in any of the leaked drafts that I saw. It was it was just suddenly the electric utilities would like to have ninety million dollars, but we can't do anything for poor people who would be hit by rising gasoline costs. Is is the uh, I've got just a, a minute uh, or so here, R. L. Miller. Um, at least uh, you know. It feels like at least California is actually having these policy debates. Uh, They're not going on in Washington, D.C. They need to be going on in Washington, D.C. So I see an upside there to the fact that we're, you know, we can even talk about these policies in this state. Uh, You you describe Climate Hawks Votes describes uh, the bill as largely symbolic. But is that symbolism at least uh, important right now? Is there an upside there? I mean, not only for the U.S., you know, with Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement, but to send a signal around the world, uh, as Brown also argues, that, hey, at least we are in the game. At least we are trying to do something here. We're trying to innovate. We're trying to move in the right direction. Do you see any upside in that? It's a symbol. Is it a symbol with substance behind it? Is it a symbol that does anything for ordinary California voters. Mm -hmm. The odd thing about this bill was that the people who loved it talked about the markets. And Environmental Defense Fund is one of the most market-oriented environmental groups out there. And several of the state legislators, they liked to talk about market certainty and market mechanisms and what kind of signal this sends to the market and the symbol that this represents to the market. I 
think that the lungs of people, black people, brown people, white people in California are actually more important than the market. I did a petition from Climate Hawks Vote asking Jerry Brown to stop being Chevron's stenographer. <laughs> I'm told that it made his head explode. <laughs> I'm sort of proud of that. <laughs> Well, uh, keep up the good fight, RL. I really appreciate what you're doing. I, you know, it seems to me that California is at least moving in the right direction, if not moving there fast enough. Uh, so it's going to rely on people like you and Climate Hawks vote uh, to to push us there faster. Uh, so thanks for uh, for joining us today to explain this. RL Miller is the founder of Climate Hawks Vote. You can get more information on what they do at climatehawksvote.com, and you can and should follow her on the Twitter at RL underscore Miller. Did I get all that right, RL? Yeah, it's RL underscore Miller, and if you follow me, you see that there's a picture of a loud squawky hawk, and yes, I'm a loud squawky hawk. <laughs> well well done. Uh, you're also the elected chair of the California Democratic Party's Environmental Caucus. Thanks for joining us today, RL. Thank you. Okay, we got to get out. What you see there, Des, that's how you cover That's how you're fair and balanced. You don't have to bring on liars and non-liars. You can discuss both of the, uh, the legitimate sides of this argument. And I don't know where I fall on it. I'm trying to learn more about it. That's why I was glad to get R.L. Miller here, because a lot of people have been singing the praises of this California bill and Jerry Brown. Um, but see, uh, there you go. We don't need to bring on a climate denier. Well, uh, in to fact, get their side yeah, of the issue. I, and I would say that, like you mentioned, you know, these are the conversations, the kinds of detailed policy debates that we need to be having. Americans need to understand both at the local and the state and the federal level, all of the possibilities, the levers that are available to us. We need to understand. We need to figure out what to do about it, right. not whether it is happening at all. And that's what the ridiculous debate is uh, on the national level. And it's killing us all. Yeah, right. and we can do this. And and by the way, I just want to throw in one more thing. It's your birthday today, and I want to say happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you for working on your birthday. I know that that is like not I had fun. a choice. <laughs> True. Thank so anyway, you. happy birthday. That's all. Thank you very much. Uh, you can uh, leave. You can leave me a birthday present hey, if you, you like go. by stopping by bradblog.com/slash/donate. I will appreciate that. Um, all right. Uh, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, <laughs> to my guest today R.L. Miller of ClimateHawksVote.com. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can, as ever, download it for free at bradblog.com. You can also uh, find, uh, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. And you can drop me a birthday note, if you like, via email at bradcast at (laughs) bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, which will be tomorrow, I insist upon it. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.